Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we have life and hope and healing and comfort, God. It's you, Jesus. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you to Ray and the team for leading us so well this morning. If you are brand new to Ocean View, and I got to meet a few folks before the service, a special welcome to you. Uh, we have been preaching through the book of Acts this fall, and it's been a great journey. Uh, we're not done yet. Uh, this is sermon number nine, but this will be our final sermon uh, for the fall. Next week, we move into Advent, uh, the four Sundays counting down to Christmas Eve. So we're excited about that. Uh, but we're going to pick up Acts after uh, the Christmas season is over in the winter. Uh, so don't worry, we're not leaving the book of Acts forever, uh, but we're just taking a little break after today. So this is sermon number nine, and it has been an amazing journey uh, through the book. But before we jump in this morning, I want to tell you about one of the most colorful characters to ever put on a Major League Baseball uniform. His name is Yogi Berra. And uh, he became famous. He was a good ball player. He was a good catcher for the New York Yankees. Uh, but he was probably more famous for the absolute crazy things that would come out of his mouth. This guy just defied logic in every sense. Uh, so USA Today put together a page on their website of the 50 greatest Yogi Berra comments of all time. I picked seven of them uh, just to give us a little sense of his brilliance. Brilliance, we're going to put that in quotes. So here's one of his funny ones. Baseball is 90% mental. The other half's physical. So students stay in math class. Otherwise, you will end up making statements like that. Uh, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. No, Yogi, it never was. <laughs> Always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. <laughs> Congratulations, I knew the record would stand until it was broken. Just like a never-ending fountain of wisdom, this guy. I like this one. He says, I'm, lucky. I'm a lucky guy. I'm happy to be with the Yankees. And I want to thank everyone for making this night necessary. I think he was shooting for possible and he landed on necessary. This one, abs this next one kills me. I'm not going to buy my kids an encyclopedia. Let them walk to school like I did. <laughs> that is fantastic. And then this one is so good. If you've ever struck out playing baseball, I never blame myself when I'm not hitting. I just blame the bat. And if it keeps it up, I change bats. After all, I know if it isn't my fault that I'm not hitting, how can I get mad at myself? Oh my goodness, he's just awesome. Anyways, so now we have a sense of who Yogi Berra is. Now this story will make sense. So Yogi Berra is playing for the Yankees. He's the catcher. Uh, Hank Aaron was the major power hitter in Major League Baseball game during that era. And uh, just a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. He got recently inducted into the Hall of Fame. Amazing, amazing guy. His real name was Henry, but everyone called him Hank Aaron. And uh, the teams were playing in the World Series. The Milwaukee Braves, they were called at that point, uh, before they moved to Atlanta. 
and the Yankees. And so Henry Aaron comes up to bat, and Yogi's yapping, as usual, all these crazy statements. And as he stands up, he says, Henry, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so you can read the, the trademark on it. And so Aaron kind of looks at him, doesn't say anything. Next pitch comes, and he smokes it. Left field, way into the 15th row. He jogs around the bases. He comes back, and he stops, and he looks down at Yogi Bear and he says, I didn't come up here to read. <laughs> I love it. So good. Well, that shut him up for a minute. And when I read that little great little story, I thought, you know what? He was focused. He was laser focused. He knew what he was up to. He was there to hit. He was going to smoke a home run. And he's got the catcher yapping at him. He's got fans yelling. He's got all these distractions. Nothing was going to get him off his game. Laser focused. And I think that really struck me when I jumped into our passage here at the end of Luke chapter 15. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 36 if you have your print Bible. I realized as I began to read the passage and study, I was like, this is the Apostle Paul. He's just like Hank Aaron. No matter what's going on, no matter what distractions, he is laser focused on the mission that God has given him. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 36, as I said. Let's read. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Quite, a, quite an opening, quite a passage, it's a little bit shocking. And immediately questions jump into our mind. First one, is Paul being a jerk here? Is he not forgiving Mark for abandoning them right in the middle of their first missionary journey? I don't know, it seems weird. Maybe on the other side, maybe Barnabas. He's kind of being oh, an overly indulgent uncle to his nephew, John Mark. Is that what's going on? Then we kind of wonder, we're reading the Bible. How can these two superstar Christians have such a strong disagreement? This just doesn't seem right. What is happening? And then probably the question underneath it all is, what in the world is God doing in and through this situation? So back in Acts chapter 13, one of our first sermons in the series, uh, we saw this. John Mark abandons Paul and Barnabas. And at the time, it doesn't get a whole lot of play in Acts. It's just one quick verse, verse 13. It says, From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. At that point, it almost seems like maybe they sent him off. But no, we're finding out now he deserted them. Now, how did he leave? We're not sure. Did he kind of sneak off in the middle of the night? Or did he talk it over with them? They're like, no, you've got to stay. And he decided, no, I'm going anyways. We don't exactly know how it happened, but we know it did not sit well with Paul and Barnabas. 
And you know what? Now that I've hit 49 and I'm the lead pastor and I have a staff to work with, I get, I get a little bit of where they're coming from. That, yeah, you invest so much in someone, a, a younger person coming up and you train them, you spend time, you develop them, and then all of a sudden they leave. They're gone. Everything you put in seems to kind of vanish. That's hard. That's really frustrating. And I can understand why Paul is reluctant. He's like, no, come on, the guy abandoned us once. I don't want to bring him back. Paul, as I said, just like Hank Aaron, he is laser focused on the mission God has given him. You know, when that happened, when they were on the island of Cyprus, God had just done an amazing miracle. They were seeing these supernatural workings of God. They saw the local Roman governor come to faith. They were seeing other people come to faith. The seeds of a church were being formed. And I bet at the time, Paul probably thought something like, what is wrong with this guy? Why is he leaving now? It's just getting good. It's just getting amazing. Who would leave now? On the other side of the ledger, I think Barnabas really saw the potential in this young dude. Untapped potential deep down. Now, he was a relative of Barnabas's, so there may have been some family kind of feeling there as well. And that fits really well with Barnabas's character from what we know in the book of Acts. In fact, when Paul switched from being Saul, the persecutor of the church, Saul who gave his approval to Christians like Stephen being killed, and God miraculously reaches him, Barnabas was one of the very first people to reach out to him. In one of our first sermons on Acts, we saw how Barnabas took it on himself to go up into Syria to find Paul in Damascus, find out where he was, meet with him, pray with him, and bring him back to the church in Antioch. So this is Barnabas' character. He sees the potential in people. He wants to help them flourish. Years later, the Apostle Paul would write an amazing verse to his protege, Timothy, who was preaching and teaching in the church of Ephesus. 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul would write, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Isn't that amazing? This was reconciled. The relationship was brought together years later. And John Mark obviously had a turnaround. He became very helpful to Paul. He became faithful. He became a dependable worker. So who knows? In the great big plan of God, maybe this kind of thing needed to happen. Maybe John Mark needed a little bit of wake-up in his life for an attitude change. Now all of that may give us a little bit of a hint into that question, what is God doing in and through this situation Essentially, you've now got two missionary teams out of one. So Barnabas takes John Mark. They go off to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas, heads out on his next major missionary expedition through Syria and Cilicia. So you can see those Roman province areas as they were called in that day and age. So that's where Paul is going. Now, as I studied and pondered that, I thought, you know what, look, the Lord didn't cause that disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, but he did bring a silver lining out of it. 
And I've been struck this fall many, many times, but specifically this past week as BC has been ravaged by crazy floods, that God has a constant way of bringing silver linings out of really hard, terrible things. If you've been following the news, it was especially bad in places like Hope, BC. Uh, highways washed away, mudslides. Uh, we had a sinkhole up here on Vancouver Island. Uh, fuel and food are being rationed. Uh, trades and goods are being really brought to a standstill. It's not a fun time, not, not a good thing. But right in the midst of it, God has used Christian people and churches in amazing ways. Grace Baptist Church in Hope is one of our Fellowship Pacific Churches. And uh, Pastor Jeff Kuhn is the pastor there. I've gotten to know Jeff over the years. Great, great guy. Uh, they did a phenomenal job. Uh, they had 250 people completely stranded in their town. They brought them into the church. They fed them. They housed them. They had people sleeping all over the church. Three days, over 250 people found shelter and an incredible welcome in hope. Amazing, amazing. CBC News ended up doing a really cool interview with Pastor Jeff, uh, and it was on their national news. Pretty amazing stuff. And then Camp Squia, Christian summer camp just down the road, they got a call from a hockey team that was stranded in hope and said, oh my goodness, we, we have nowhere to sleep. The last night we had to sleep on the bus. Kids are cold and wet and tired and, and uh, any chance you could help us out. And so the camp opened up. They didn't even have power when they first got there. The, the power was out. They had to get their generator going. They ended up housing and feeding this hockey team, all the parents, and along with about 90 other people showed up at the camp. So Christians have just been doing an amazing thing. So in the midst of, of horrible floods and all the destruction, God has brought a silver lining out of it. And that makes us think, you know what? I think God does that in each one of our lives. It's an amazing question to take some time and ponder. Have there been any God-given silver linings to the hard things I have gone through in my life. All right, so now we have these two ministry teams going out. Paul and Silas to the north, Barnabas and John Mark over to the island of Cyprus to the south. Let's find out what happens. We're going to pick it up in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along in the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. The apostle Paul, he's amazing. He just has found this guy, Silas, and starts working with him. And now he spots another young guy, Timothy. Paul's a mentoring machine. He's always on the lookout for the next generation. That's why I've entitled our second point, Believing in the Next Generation. Several years later in his letter to the church that will be planted in Corinth, so the letter in the second half of the Bible, Corinthians, Paul calls Timothy his son, whom he loves. 
And when he does that, it's kind of a shorthand way of saying that he actually led Timothy to faith in Jesus Christ, but also that he's become like a son. That relationship is incredibly close. He's become a capable, faithful, dynamic follower of Jesus. One commentary written on the book of Acts says this, Paul's attention was drawn to the young man by the good report, which was given him by the Christians in the neighborhood, both in Lystra and in Iconium, some 18 miles away. A good reputation of this kind was an indispensable qualification for Christian leadership. That was true in the first century. It's also true in the 21st century. Sometimes over the pastoral ministry I've had, people have come up to me that are brand new and say, hey, I want to lead something. And my first question is always, great, who's followed you? Oh, well, I've never really led anything. Okay, well, tell me a little of your history. Yeah, I don't really go to a church. Okay, so you're here, you want to lead, but you've never been to a church and you've never really had anyone follow you. You know what? Maybe let's work on some things first and then we'll see if you get there. And that's kind of true. In life, it's true in Christian ministry. When someone comes in and they just start serving and they love and they just get involved, you can start to spot that person has potential as a future leader. That's what Paul did with this young guy, Timothy. You know what? That's kind of a challenge for us, isn't it? Are we looking down the next generation? Are we looking to see, ah, there's a young person with potential. I want to invest time, energy, and prayer into that person and watch them develop and flourish. I'm going to completely embarrass this poor girl this morning, but Melody Sumter, you often see her up here drumming. Uh, She's in grade 12 at Ladysmith Secondary School. That girl is a gem. She's got a heart after Jesus. Probably every five weeks, I get a text from Melody. Hey, Pastor Darren, I was just reading my Bible, and I was thinking about this. What does this mean? And she'll have some question, and I'll do my best to answer. I just love it. She's, she's just pursuing Jesus. She wants to learn and grow more. And she's extremely faithful, being on worship team, drumming all the time. Uh, she's a light at her high school. And I just think, you know what? We have an opportunity as a church with students like Melody. You know, somebody, a woman maybe could come along and just see the potential in her and start investing, praying, meeting with her. I think we have a future leader on our hands. We've had several young adults in the church this fall express that they'd be open to kind of the idea of having a mentor. There's potential there. And you know what? That's how the early church flourished. Paul spotted people. And he raised them up as future leaders. Well, once Paul has recruited these young guys, he hits the open road with them on the trip. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, They tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, 
concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. A lot going on in this passage. Paul, Silas, and Timothy thought that the next logical place for them to go was the Roman province of Asia. It's kind of straight ahead of them. It's where they were going. We would call that the modern-day country of Turkey. Millions of people haven't heard the good news of the gospel. It all makes sense. But God knew it wasn't the right moment. I got a little cheeky this week and entitled the sermon R for Restricted. And what I meant was this scene where God restricts them from going into this new mission field, the Roman province of Asia. Now, I did a lot of research. I tried to find why. Why did God stop them from going there? No one really seems to know. There's some guesses. Maybe things were really going to be dangerous for them at that point, and they would have just died. Who knows? Maybe the people in that area needed to see the gospel kind of take root and flourish, maybe in other parts of the Roman Empire before they would accept it. We don't know. For whatever reason, God blocks these missionaries from going there. Pretty amazing scene if you think about it, because their hearts are willing to go wherever the Lord says, and he dramatically stops them. Now, we don't know exactly what that looked like. Did God kind of give one of the group maybe a a prophecy to say to the other two guys? Was it maybe God's kind of spirit inside, the inner voice kind of booming in their heads? We're not sure. But it was extremely clear that they weren't to go there. And I thought about my own life, and I thought back 13 years ago. Lori and I were living in Victoria Lori had just finished teaching at a public elementary school in Colwood. She was on maternity leave. Our daughter, Callista, who's now 16, was only two and a half at the time. Malia was just a baby. I was an associate pastor at Sandwich Baptist Church there. Life was pretty comfortable. But that's when the Holy Spirit was kind of nudging us to uh, think about what's next. And it was really becoming this thing we just couldn't ignore. I remember feeling like, Ah, it's building up inside. It's, it's time to, time to just explore this. I remember our regional director, David Harita, came over and he said, all right, Phillips, let's, let's talk. He goes, there's kind of six churches that are interested in you. Uh, let's figure this out. And he goes, there's one in Armstrong, there's one in Surrey, there's one in Mission, uh, there's one in Ladysmith here on Vancouver Island. Uh, there's six churches. And I remember Lori and I praying it through over the weeks and and just looking at all of them and going, I don't know, which one should we do? And Lori's like, I don't know, I'm not so wild about Surrey. Kind of seems like lots of gang violence. We want our kids to make it past 20. Um, uh, you know, and we looked at all the different areas. And it was weird. It was like we just felt at the same time directed towards Lady Smith. And we felt blocked from the other places. I, I can't quite describe it. But as I think back, I think... I have a tiny insight into maybe what Paul and Silas and Timothy experienced, where God said, no, I don't want you to go there. I've got a different plan for you. Interesting. So we're not exactly sure, as I mentioned, how exactly God communicated this, but it was extremely plain to them. Now, it says in one verse, it says the Holy Spirit prevented them from going and then in the next verse verse 7 it says the spirit of jesus prevented them 
And when you read that, that might be slightly confusing. It's Luke's way, the author of Acts, just of kind of two different titles referring back to the Holy Spirit. But I think what he's trying to say is that within the triune God, within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the will and, and plan of Jesus is in perfect concert with the Holy Spirit. They, they're one. There is incredible unity in the, in the Trinity. And if we want to get really deep for a second, it's the Holy Spirit of God that mediates the presence of Jesus in our lives. When people say, Jesus lives in me, it's the, it's the Holy Spirit mediating his presence. Now you're like, ah, Darren, stop, my head hurts. Don't worry. Just be assured that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working together in perfect unity. Unity in diversity. Well, that brings us to some final supernatural dramatic leading. God gives Paul, Silas, and Timothy a vision of this guy in Macedonia. Where in the world's Macedonia? Just think Greece and just think kind of the northern area on top of Greece. And this guy is like pleading and begging in the vision, come help us, bring us the good news, establish churches, bring the gospel here. Now, we can miss that this is actually one of the momentous moments in all of history. For the last 2,000 years, this is a momentous moment because we're actually about to switch continents. Because the country of Turkey today, that's considered Asia Minor, and then below is obviously the Middle East. There's a little tiny strip of water called the Bosporus, and across that is Europe. So we're actually switching continents. This is a momentous moment. Today, the city is called Istanbul. It used to be Constantinople. Amazing place. And that's the dividing line between Asia Minor and Europe. So this is a huge, huge, huge moment. And you think of all these miraculous things. As we walk through the book of Acts this, this fall, we have seen miracles, We've seen people getting healed. We've seen dramatic things. And, and it's not going to stop. The book of Acts is kind of one big miracle factory. God's always doing amazing, amazing things. And as, we thought, as I thought about this, I actually read this amazing little quote from Eugene Peterson. You probably recognize his name. He translated the Bible into the message version, which our call to worship this morning, Ray did beautifully, was from the message and Eugene's written about 30 books. This is what he has to say. I love this. He says, Because the story of Jesus and the early church is so impressive, God among us, God speaking a language we can understand, God acting in ways that heal and help and save us, Paul and Barnabas and the apostles performing miracles, seeing people come to faith, there is a danger that we'll be really impressed but only impressed. As the spectacular dimensions of the story dawn upon us, we can easily become enthusiastic spectators. And then let it go with that. Become admirer of Jesus and how the Holy Spirit was at work in the early church. We could be generous with our oohs and ahs, and in our better moments, maybe be inspired to imitate, but only that, just armchair admirers and then here's the peterson quote he says the story of jesus doesn't end with jesus it continues in the lives of those who believe in him the supernatural does not stop with jesus 
Luke makes it clear that these early Christians he wrote about in Acts were no more spectators of Jesus than Jesus was a spectator of God the Father. They are in on the action of God. God acting in them. God living in them. Which also means, of course, in us. And that's the beautiful thing about the book of Acts. We realize you know what? The story keeps on going. Back in their first sermon in Acts, I used this great little kid's book, Elephant and Piggy. Uh, We are in a book, and these two little characters discover that they're actually in a book. They're being read by readers. Now nine sermons into the journey of Acts, it's a great reminder that the story keeps on going, and we are a part of it. God was alive and well, working through the people that made up the early church, and he's alive and well working in and through you and I. Those watching online this morning, all of us here, the store keeps on going, and we are a part of it. That's the biggest thing I want us to walk away with this morning. We're still part of the same mission. The story is being written. We're just about to enter Advent in the Christmas season, probably more than ever, in this weird, crazy time where this pandemic just seems to go on and on, your neighbors, your friends, your family, they need to hear and see the gospel in your deeds and in your words. All of us need to be on the same mission as Barnabas and John Mark, the same mission as Paul, Silas, and Timothy. You know what? They crossed continents to share the gospel. Maybe you and I cross the street. Amen? Dustin, come and pray for us.